welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Marin vs. Cedar, Fresh Air, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, The Slate.com podcast, and This American Life. Okay, 32 days until I'm the partier in chief. Today I'm going to uh, pardon all those uh, homosexual, LGTP, uh, whatever it is, folks. I pardon your uh, gay ignorance about being upset about Pastor Rick Warren, you know, given the uh, invocation of Bam Bam's inauguration. I know Rick Warren has a problem with the gays because they, uh, they do icky. Uh, but can you blame him? It's icky. Rick Warren is a man of God, which means he's a man. So if you're gay, you love uh, a man. So you should love Rick Warren because he's a man, too. Now, uh, all you gays, uh, be free. You've been pardoned. Head down to uh, Sewatinaho and uh, hang out with Andy Dufresne. But uh, no funny business. He was married to a girl. All right. My job here is done. Jetpack. Engage. Look at that. It's raining men up here. Just kidding. I, that's a good one, Sammy. I just got a, an IM from Granny Grimm who says, bullshit, these here snake-handling psychos down here ain't going to work with that that one on anything, referring to the black one comment. Well, you know, it's not a question of them working with him. It's a question of, you know, the, the way that political power is exercised is generally through the spokespeople. And that these spokespeople are given uh, a certain amount of... Um, validity based upon uh, how they're perceived at, within the context of that group. So it doesn't matter if the individual con congregants, uh, Rick Warren's congregants or any of these evangelicals say anything because their voice cannot be heard in the broader conversation. If you've got Rick Warren on CNN uh, one day saying, well, I agree with you know Barack Obama that we need to green uh, X, Y, or Z. So, I mean, yeah. that's the, at least I, I am assuming that's the political calculation. Well, I think that, you know, also, you know, when you have somebody like Rick Warren and he becomes the ordained leader of those people, he's the, the leaders of that particular group, the Christo fascist zombie brigade. They are able to speak directly into the heads and hearts of their followers like no other leader can. It's a it's a cult like commitment. And many of them are, are very shallow and their beliefs are very simple and they are easily programmed. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, it, it just comes down to, you know, Obama did fairly well with young evangelicals. And, I mean, relatively speaking. Now, of course, he also did worse with gays than John Kerry did. But basically what you're seeing is throw the gays under the bus. And, right. Right. you know, That's at the end of the like day, I can, I can ascribe certain political motivations to Obama about it. But it's pretty reprehensible. I mean, it, it, it just, it, I, I think it's, you know, it remains to be seen if it's effective politically, but at the end of the day, it's also sending out a pretty bad message. Well, it sends out a message that uh, that they are not a a voting a constituency that is really concerned with numbers wise. It also sends out the message that this is his version of triangulation. This is his version of how Clinton did it. This is his version of reaching out in not the, the same way that Clinton did by being folksy and from Arkansas and 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 appealing to them on a on a charm level, but this is more blatantly political, I think, than the way that Clinton handled the religious right. Uh, definitely. And I think, you know, he's it, this is sort of Obama's sister soldier moment for to a certain extent. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the Obama people are hyping, you know, uh, this alienation uh, as much as anybody else. You know, you remember that the first thing that Clinton did when he got in office was had a review of the policy of admittance of gays in the military and that was sort of a huge fuel on the fire of all the uh, right wingers. And maybe to a certain extent, the Obama people uh, learned that lesson or, or what they perceive as being that lesson and went right. the other direction with it. Well, you know, Sam, it's funny that we're talking about this because one of the designers of the methodology of, of how the Christian right and the political right works is dead. And I wouldn't uh, you know, I hate to celebrate but uh, I, I do find a, a little bit of satisfaction. Everybody's going to die. He was in his 60s. Everyone's going to die. But uh, Paul Weyrich is, is dead. Good riddance.
but uh, but the the damage that he did and the, uh, the the sort of the methods and infrastructure that he put in place to maintain and grow the religious right and the Republican right uh, will never be undone. Uh, you know, direct mail and and uh, think tanks and the heritage moral foundation. Majority. He huh? was basically the architect of the moral majority. That's right. Um, so, he spawned Ralph Reed, and he uh, he he rose Jerry Falwell up to the pinnacle of success or evil success that he once had. And he's 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 very famous for saying um, he has a quote that is something like, "Some people have what I call the goo goo government uh, syndrome." The goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. Uh, Wyrick is famous for saying that he doesn't want everybody to vote. He wants to suppress the voting because that's when Republicans win. Yeah, so Wyrick, is, uh, he was the inspiration to people like Karl Rove, to Abramoff. They all sort of sucked at his teats and learned his tricks. And I posted on the blog uh, something that predated the Heritage Foundation that really set the framework for the entire structure of the right-wing machine on, prop, on a propaganda level and on an ideological level is the Powell memo that was written by uh, the, uh, by uh, what's his first name? He was appointed to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon and the thing was written a few years before the Heritage Foundation uh, was put into place and created. And that thing is like just the architecture of, of how the right wing completely destroyed democracy and the progressive movement in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. Lewis Powell, I think was the guy's name. Yeah. It wasn't even written with the. It was written so pragmatically that 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 particular memo. It wasn't a religious thing, but at the time these guys were so frightened that capitalism was under siege that they had to put something in place to start pushing back what they saw as liberal doctrine in the in the colleges on college campuses in the business world anywhere it seemed to rear its head. Well, it wasn't just the capitalism. They were afraid that the middle class was getting too much political power because they were a little bit too comfortable uh, economically. But um, right. And but also it was spurred on, but I think uh, you know, also with that you know, tremendous fear that the 60s you know, created in the Nixon mind and in the cultural mind that this government and this economic system is fragile if revolt can happen at that level. But that's, that's what the 60s were all about, was, it was that the middle class felt comfortable enough that you had people, young people, who were basically saying, uh, I'm confident I'm going to have a job no matter uh, what, how, what I speak out or what I do at this point. And you wouldn't find people who have that same comfort level today. I don't think, you know, people would be nervous about getting arrested or protesting on some level in, in that fashion. So you're saying a lot of them were like spoiled kids, but it was interesting. No, not that... spoiled kids. But I mean, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, Hartman makes this argument in his book, uh, Screwed, that basically, you know, once you have a, a certain amount of financial security, uh, the notion of, of talking back to your bosses or talking back to the establishment becomes a lot easier. And it's also interesting how quickly, within 10 years or so, that the entire movement and everything it stood for was appropriated by those who sell to the middle class. The music, the fashions, that, you know, by the end of the 60s, speed had killed the movement on a drug level, and most of the music had been, you know, packaged and resold to the upper middle class to the point where you see pictures of my father wearing Nehru jackets and whatnot. An only child alone and wild, a cabinet maker's son. His hands were meant for different work And his heart was known to none He left his home and went his lone And solitary way And he gave to me a gift I know I never can repay A quiet man of music Denied a simpler fate He tried to be a soldier once But his music wouldn't wait He earned his love through discipline A thundering velvet hand His gentle means of sculpting souls Took me years to understand song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. 
The evangelical base was pivotal in the election and re-election of George W. Bush, but it wasn't enough to get a McCain-Palin victory. So in this post-election period, what influence does the evangelical community have in the Republican Party? And what will, it, what will its goals be during the Obama administration? My guest, Richard Sizick, is the chief lobbyist for the National Association of Evangelicals. The organization represents about 45,000 churches from over 50 denominations with roughly 30 million constituents. In 2006, Sizick was described in the L.A. Times as, quote, a slightly younger, considerably less pugnacious and less reflexively Republican generation of conservative leaders bidding to dislodge familiar faces such as Pat Robertson, James Dobson, and Richard Land, unquote. The environment and climate change have been priorities for Sizick, which has put him at odds with some older evangelical leaders and with some in the Republican Party. Richard Sizek, welcome back to Fresh Air. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, and I realize this might be personal and you might not want to talk about it, but in interviews before the election, it sounded like you might be tilting toward Obama. So I'm going to ask you who you voted for, knowing that it's your right to not tell us. <laughs> so, uh, Terry, let me answer it this way. In the Virginia primary, I voted for Barack Obama. Okay. In other words, uh, I would rather not <laughs> yeah. say in the uh -huh. election general mm -hmm. just wh whom it is that I did vote for. But that's an indication, but it doesn't say definitively. In other words, I don't want anybody to think because I'm the lobbyist in chief for the National Association of Evangelicals that because I voted one way or the other, I can't represent their concerns. So I believe I can. I happen to think in the primary it was the best choice. People disagreed. Evangelicals did in this final election, general election. But I think all of us today believe we want this man to succeed. Absolutely. If we don't think that, there's something wrong with us. How important is faith to you when you're voting? I think it's very important, but it's not the factor, nor should it be, though there are those who by identity politics and culture war, they do that. And that's the most important factor. I say absolutely not. Character first, of which faith is a part, of course. It helps determine one's values. But there are other factors, such as the philosophy of government, two parties, two different philosophies, and lastly, the issues. So it's possible for me to disagree, for example, with a candidate on high-profile issues and still believe that on the basis of character or philosophy, he's the better of the two candidates. So in this case, uh, it would be possible, as evangelicals did, to disagree with Barack Obama on same-sex marriage and abortion and yet vote for him. We know they did, not because of those positions he stood, but in spite of those positions. So how big a split do you see now within the evangelical movement over what direction the movement should head in and what issues should be emphasized? It's hard to know, Terry, because even the younger evangelicals, those that went for Obama, they clearly are pro-life. They're conservatives, but they also, well, 32% of evangelicals voted for Obama. Younger evangelicals, that is. That's twice the number that voted for John Kerry four years ago. And this is a big increase in states like Colorado, Indiana, North Carolina. So the younger evangelicals are probably the future with that broader palette. And they will determine the future of this huge movement that, well, by some surveys estimates, if you include children and the rest, 100 million people, one third of all Americans. So in, in that younger group that you're describing, is uh, gay marriage not a, a priority issue? It's not as high, no. In fact, uh, if you look at some figures, these uh, younger evangelicals, they disagree quite strongly with their elders on that subject. Do you think that that's in part because younger people are growing up in an environment where they know gay people? There are so many yes. gay people mm -hmm. who are out. And once you know gay people who are out, Maybe it's not so threatening. Absolutely. The influence of their generational peers is clear. Four in ten young evangelicals say they have a close friend or a family member who's gay or lesbian. And so much different than their elders, younger evangelicals, they, well, 52% favor either same-sex marriage or civil unions. But it's not just on this issue, Terry. For example, fully two-thirds of younger evangelicals say they would still vote for a candidate even if the candidate disagreed with them on the issue of abortion. And that's in spite of the fact that younger evangelicals, they are decidedly pro-life, but they also rank other issues, economic issues, the environment. These other issues are very important to them. In fact, health care is just as important to the younger evangelicals as is abortion. And so they have a more pluralistic outlook than older white evangelicals. And they have a decidedly different posture with respect to the role of government here and abroad. Do you think that the evangelical 
base mm-hmm. has lost any clout within the Republican Party because the Republicans lost the presidential election. Oh, it's inescapable, that loss of clout. You hear it in the party's leaders who are questioning this. They know that is the leaders of the GOP. They know that they can't win without these votes, but they can't win the rest of the voters that they need at times because of the way evangelicals have behaved within the political party. What do you mean by that? Well, I remember Dick Armey once referred to one of our leaders as a bully and a thug. Well, those are harsh words, but that was a leader of the Republican Party referring to how he was getting pressure. Well, the tactics that have been employed have altogether backfired, it seems to me. Everyone knows that. And so, look, you have to have a vision and you have to have a strategy, a strategy that works. And if your strategy isn't working, then rethink it. And so to make its way forward, the Republican Party is going to have to, I think, come up with a vision that appeals to people, a strategy that in fact works. And uh, its adherents, those who claim it as their own, have to employ tactics that don't destroy it in the meanwhile. I imagine you didn't agree with Sarah Palin on environmental issues. For example, her emphasis on drill, baby, drill, and also the fact that she said she wasn't sure if human behavior uh, contributed to climate change. Now, climate change and the environment are issues you're trying to put much more toward the top of the evangelical Yeah, I couldn't. Agenda. You're right. I couldn't have disagreed with her more. Just a year ago, we found out from climate scientists that the melt in the Arctic had turned into a rout. It was happening so fast it was if your hair turned gray overnight. Now, I have a receding hairline, but I don't have uh, my hair turning gray overnight. Well, that's what happened to the environment. An area the size of Colorado was disappearing every week, and the Northwest Passage was staying wide open all September uh, for the first time in history. And so to look at this and not see what's happening, I think is, well, it was sort of the ignorance is strength idea. Well, not. It's not strength. Look, strength is knowing what's happening to the world around us. And moreover, as a Christian, we, we can't uh, claim to love the creator and abuse the world in which we live. Uh, to do so is like claiming to be a fan of Shakespeare and then burn his plays. So is there a big debate in evangelical circles now about what the future of Sarah Palin should be in the Republican Party, whether she is the future or whether she is a problem? Oh, I think there certainly is a certain amount of that debate going on. But I think people are sort of content to let Alaskans decide that. Before she becomes a national candidate again, she has to run for re-election, right? So so you're thinking maybe Alaskans will vote her out of office, thus ending her political career? Maybe. We don't know. But I don't think that you can humbly walk into the future and not understand that we don't know all the answers. And if you don't have a little bit of self-awareness about that, well, I don't think you can embody the Christian values of humility and justice and walking humbly with your Lord. There was something missing there that I just didn't see, and you're sensing it here. In other words, a certain humility about it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. I, I like look forward to seeing that demonstrated in Barack Obama's policies. The younger evangelicals have a different attitude, in fact, uh, even toward the use of military. I happen to be among these evangelical young people, even though by age I might not qualify, right? And the idea that, well, you can have a sort of anti-science, anti-intellectualism and walk into the world with a big stick and hope to be able to win these wars. You can't win these kinds of wars we're fighting uh, with a big stick. We know that. Well, let me ask you, you say you you really identify with the uh, concerns and priorities of younger evangelical voters. And one of those priorities is uh, it's, it's more of an acceptance of homosexuality and gay marriage. A couple of years ago when you were on our show, I asked you if you were changing your mind on that. And two years ago, you said you were still opposed to gay marriage. But now as you identify more and more with the younger voters and their priorities, have you changed on gay marriage? I'm shifting, I have to admit. In other words, I would willingly say I believe in civil unions. Mm-hmm. I don't officially support redefining marriage uh, from its traditional definition, I don't think. We have this tension going on in a movement between what is church building and what is nation building. And I lean in this spectrum at times, maybe we should concentrate on building our values in our own movement. We have become so absorbed in the question of gay rights and the rest that we fail to understand the challenges and threats to marriage itself, heterosexual marriage. Maybe we need to reevaluate this 
and look at it a little differently. I'm always looking for ways to reframe issues, give the biblical point of view a different slant, if you will, and look at we have to. The whole world, literally the planet, is changing around us. And if you don't change the way you think and adapt, especially to things like climate change, scientists like Bob Doppelt, he says, well, if you don't adapt and change your thinking, you may ultimately uh, be a loser because climate change in his mind, he's a systems analyst, has, says has the capacity to determine the winners and losers. And your, uh, your life um, will never be the same. Growing up during, I say, the Great Warming, our grandparents grew up during the Great Depression. Our parents, well, they uh, lived in the aftermath of that and became probably the most, uh, well, the greediest generation. And our generation, this younger one, needs to be the greenest. returns to give consumers a Christmas pep talk. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The only begotten Son of God made a brief second return to Earth today to urge the world shoppers to spend big this holiday season. Christ even went as far as to offer several marketing strategies to help get consumers into stores. Target regional manager Justin Long. Uh, Jesus appeared before me uh, and he had some really good ideas. Though he made no promises, Christ did hint that he might return in January to see if sales figures will make him a happy savior. raise this question that I, I want to put to you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Barack Obama supports the right to have an abortion, but he also advocates reducing the number of abortions when possible. Will you support him in abortion reduction, or do you see that as a diversion from the work of banning or restricting abortion? I will support him. I will support Barack Obama in finding ways to reduce abortions, absolutely. Now, is, is that it's... controversial within the evangelical movement. For some, yes. I've already been called one of the devil's minions for taking this position, but... It's because it's seen as compromising? Yes, it's seen as compromising. Mm -hmm. And... But that's, again, that winner-take-all mentality that you have to have it all. In politics, I've learned over many years, less is more. I think finding those who are in trouble, in crisis, helping them through this... And if need be, even supplying what government presently doesn't do, namely contraception, is an answer to reducing, you see, unintended pregnancies. These I, are, I, wait, wait. I think I heard you say government supplying contraception. That's, yes. That's got to be controversial among evangelicals. Among some it would be, but I don't think so. We are not, as I have said previously, we're not Catholics who oppose contraception per se. And let's face it. What do you want? Do you want an unintended pregnancy uh, that results in abortion, or do you want to meet a woman's needs in crisis who, frankly, would, by better contraception, avoid that choice, avoid that 
abortion that we all recognize as morally repugnant, at least it is to me. So what else is on your list of priorities now as a chief lobbyist for the National Association of Evangelicals? What, what, what do you look looking I can tell forward you what, after January 20th? Yeah, uh, let, let me say that one of the bigger war and peace issues that I'm struggling with and attempting to find a, a role on is that of the threat of nuclear terrorism. A mm-hmm. new report just came out this week saying that it's greater and realer than we ever thought before. I'm actually going to Paris to be part of the unveiling of a new movement called Global Zero, uh, which is an attempt to understand that whereas before the possession of nuclear weapons was a deterrent, it no longer is. In a world in which you have non-state actors who can potentially wield weapons of mass destruction, the mere possession of weapons of mass destruction becomes morally problematic in ways unheard of before, if this makes any sense. And so therefore... This movement called Global Zero, uh, supported by both John McCain and Barack Obama, uh, will come forward, I think, in the next week and months ahead to communicate a strategy to begin to address this threat of nuclear terrorism. That's one thing I, I want to be a part of. I think it's very important for evangelicals. After all, I, most uh, would not make any connection, but I've been with the NAE so long that I was on staff back when uh, I actually proposed a letter to then-President Ronald Reagan, uh, which became the Evil Empire speech, to the association back in 1983. And while few remember it, that speech, known for challenging the Soviet Union, included a line from the president advocating the abolition of all nuclear weapons. Most would not remember that, and yet it was true. It almost became a reality at Reykjavik, in conversations that president had with uh, the president of the former Soviet Union. So I happen to think this is one of the premier issues, along with climate change, uh, that will impact the rest of life here on Earth. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think I've heard you say that you want to find, and you want your group, the National Association of Evangelicals, to find some common ground with Obama and work with him. Is that going to be hard to convince a lot of your members to do? Well, for those uh, to whom all compromise is simply uh, submitting UC to political correctness or whatever, for them it's going to be very hard. But for most evangelicals, I don't think so. After all, we believe, you see, that God is alive and real and he lifts up some and puts down others. And ultimately, we have to say, God has put this man in this position. It's our responsibility to pray for him, to support him, work with him in whatever ways he can. It will require for some bridging outward. That's Robert Putnam's term, bridging outward to collaborate with Barack Obama to do what is right by so many different people who need the kinds of policies he's espousing. That will be hard, but should we do it? Yes. And will we hold him accountable when he runs uh, against what we happen to think is right and good and proper and all the rest, we will do that, but we'll do it in a nice way. And we're not going to be, I think, uh, objectionable in the way that some people have in the past that, as I said, led one Republican leader to call uh, one of our numbers a bully and a thug. That's not who we are. Let Let me just ask you a pointed question. Are you waiting for some of the evangelical leaders who have opposed you on issues like your concern about the environment and climate change, are you waiting for them to retire and leave the stage? And I guess I'm thinking most specifically here about James Dobson. I'm not waiting. I would want Jim Dobson to join us because this is about creation care. It's what the Bible teaches. It's godly. It is right. So I'm not waiting for him to leave the scene at all. I want him to join us. In other words, I'm always looking, Terry, for allies, not adversaries. Always allies. This is important. It's strategically important for Christians to care for this earth, just as it's important for Christians to care for the family. These are equals. They're both part of God's concern. They're both part of his heart. And so, no, I'm not waiting. I appreciate what you're saying, but at the same time, I think the odds of you winning over James Dobson on this are probably slim. So do you, do you think what's going to change <laughs> well, in the long run is that, that he and some of the other people who oppose your work on um, 
putting environmental issues near the top of the agenda. Do you think that what's going to change is that they will retire and there will be a new guard? Well, inevitably that occurs. Even some of the names on the letter that opposed me back just a few years ago are gone. But that doesn't change the fact that we all will pay uh, a price for not changing. The earth is reaping the consequences of our actions when we don't re-examine our habits of consumption, right? Uh, the poor around the world, well, they're reaping the consequences of our failing to meet our obligations. This is not something that can wait for any of us to retire. Some may be wanting me to, but the gospel paints a vision of society that is relationally and environmentally sustainable. What do I mean by that? Relationally sustainable. It's a message of hope that we all get along, not just get along, but work together for a cause which is bigger than ourselves. Since we're in the final weeks of the Bush administration, I'd like to ask you your thoughts as that administration comes to an end. What, what, what do you think were his achievements? What are your greatest disappointments? The greatest achievements, surely the effort called the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. This is felt in real ways through sub-Saharan Africa in ways that we in the West don't even understand. They love us as Americans because of what George W. Bush did on that. I think, on the other hand, uh, this man of faith failed to understand, in my estimation, religion in the Middle East, and it led to a war that's been unnecessarily long. It may have been right to take out, as it were, Saddam Hussein, but the way this war was waged, I think in so many ways everyone would have to admit was ill-planned, ill-conceived, and the rest. And so, look, one has to have mixed emotions about the Bush administration. And what are the ways that you think he has helped and or hurt the evangelical community? I suppose George W. Bush's faith was a mixed blessing. On the one hand, uh, we evangelicals took pride in the fact that this man became president who openly said that he was a person of faith, uh, for whom even Jesus, he said, was his favorite philosopher, and yet didn't in so many ways reflect that Jesus as we would have wanted him to have, with a humility and a fashion to the rest of the world that communicated just what kind of people we are. I don't think that real picture ever came through. Richard Sizek, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, John. Richard Sizek is the chief lobbyist for the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. story about the top one of the top evangelicals in the country, uh, Reverend Richard, and I, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Chizik, Sizik, uh, and he is one of these guys who's been pushing the evangelicals uh, to become a little bit more modern and be concerned about more issues than just abortion and gay marriage. Uh, for example, he uh, is one of the leading environmentalists in the Christian evangelical community, and for which he's received a lot of scorn, of course, including from James Dobson at Focus on the Family. They're like, how dare you focus on anything but abortion and gay marriage? Oh, preserve the earth. I don't even believe in global warming. Man made my ass. Let's run the earth in the ground like Jesus would have wanted. So he didn't have a lot of friends in the first place uh, in, in that Christian right circle. Uh, then he went on the radio program and made a giant mistake. He said, well... I could see how gay marriage might not be so bad. Not gay marriage, but civil unions. You know, if 
they wanted to get together and they didn't involve marriage in it. And that, of course, is the cardinal sin to end all cardinal sins for the evangelical movement in this country. They have immediately kicked him out of the National Association of Evangelicals. He was one of the top leaders. Boom, gave him the boot. Job one, if you're going to be an evangelical leader in this country, you have to hate gay people. If you violate that rule and you don't speak out against all of their rights, you're a goner. Can't have it. Can't do it. So if you want to be associated with those folks, that's your call. But if I was you, I wouldn't do it, man. Uh, and I, Reverend Sizik is now backpedaling, but he shouldn't backpedal. He should have the courage of his convictions. It's a rare guy I like there. Today's story is called Nursing Grudges. Why do we protect the moral convictions of only some health workers? And it's written by Dahlia Lithwick. What does it tell us about the state of the abortion wars today that battles once waged over the dignity and autonomy of pregnant women have morphed into disputes over the dignity and autonomy of their health care providers instead? Two of the most pitched battles over reproductive rights in America right now turn on whether health workers can be forced to provide medical services or information to which they ethically or professionally object. But as we learn from these fights, our solicitude for the beliefs of medical workers is selective. Abortion opponents will soon enjoy broader legal protections than ever. Those willing to provide abortions, on the other hand, seem to enjoy far fewer. And women seeking reproductive services? They'll continue to be caught in the tangle between the two. The first dispute concerns a new rule purporting to protect the right of conscience of American health care workers. Under a new midnight regulation crammed through by the Bush Department of Health and Human Services and poised to become law any day now, any health care worker may refuse to perform procedures, offer advice, or dispense prescriptions if doing so would offend his or her religious beliefs or moral convictions. Congress has protected the right of physicians and nurses to opt out of providing abortions for decades. But this new rule, which President-elect Obama can overturn, although it may take months for him to do so, is far, far broader. It allows your access to birth control, emergency contraception, and even artificial insemination to turn on the moral preferences of your pharmacist, nurse, or ambulance driver. The second dispute involves a South Dakota law that went into effect last summer after an appeals court lifted a preliminary injunction. The law requires physicians providing abortions to read from a state-mandated script advising the patient that she is about to terminate the life of a whole, separate, unique, living human being with whom she has an existing relationship. The doctor must have her patient sign each page of a form indicating that she's been warned of the statistically significant risks of the procedure, including increased risk of suicide ideation and suicide. These risks are almost completely unsupported by the scientific literature. A new comprehensive study, released by Johns Hopkins, found no significant differences in long-term mental health between women in the United States who choose to terminate a pregnancy and those who do not. 
The disparity between the empirical data and the mandatory script thus forces physicians into a Hobson's choice between providing patients with accurate medical information and possible license suspension and misdemeanor charges. Reading the new HHS regulations together with the mandatory South Dakota script, one can conclude only that those same health providers who cannot legally be compelled to perform, assist in, or clean tools for an abortion may nevertheless be compelled by law to deliver misinformation about it. The freedom and autonomy of doctors who oppose abortion are to be protected. But those willing to provide abortions can be forced to deliver a state message with which they completely disagree. Something tells me that one's freedom and autonomy shouldn't generally depend upon one's moral or religious preferences. Both the HHS's right of conscience rules and the South Dakota script purport to clarify the complex legal relationship between health provider and patient, but each instead confuses and obfuscates settled law. The HHS rule as written is so ambiguous that nobody can say for certain which health care workers or medical procedures are covered, beyond establishing that both categories are broadly expanded beyond anything protected by existing right-of-conscience laws. The new rule even fails to define abortion, leaving open the possibility that anyone who thinks birth control is abortion may decline to dispense it, turning every visit to the ER or the pharmacy into a spin of the constitutional roulette wheel. A recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine similarly blasts the South Dakota script for introducing novel and confusing legal language about human beings, constitutional rights, and relationships into an intimate medical conversation between doctor and patient, concluding that these words must be there only to intimidate pregnant women with vaguely described and legal-sounding consequences. As Emily Bazelon has observed, doctors there must now make intolerable decisions about whether to explain that these warnings are not supported by science. Of course, both the HHS's conscience law and the South Dakota script law claim to be rooted in law and science. Yet the HHS rule was pushed through over the objections of the American Medical Association, the National Association of Chain Drug Stores, and the American Hospital Association, as well as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. For its part, the South Dakota rule completely upends a 1992 Supreme Court determination that states may require women to receive truthful, non-misleading information about abortion. Almost completely missing from all of this fascinating legislative discussion about what health workers might be made to do and say with respect to reproductive rights are the reproductive rights themselves. Like it or not, the right to birth control, emergency contraception, and, under most circumstances, abortion is still constitutionally protected. But these are not services a woman can provide for herself, which leaves her with few rights at all when her physicians, nurses, and pharmacists are empowered by law to misinform her, withhold advice, or to deny services altogether. Even beyond the problem of subordinating a woman's rights to those of her health care providers, however, there looms here a larger question for the health care workers themselves. If they are indeed seeing their rights and freedoms to speak and work, either hugely expanded or severely restricted based solely on which team they've chosen in the culture wars, they should be wondering whether any of them are really free at all. I was happy in the haze of a drunken hour But heaven knows I'm miserable now I was looking for a job and then I found a job And heaven knows I'm miserable Time 
A Christian loan shark prays for the strength to break another thumb. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Low-level criminal Kevin Nails McNulty sought guidance from the Lord Almighty today to help him persevere in the mangling of a customer's thumb. Whenever it comes to the question of how to go about kneecapping or otherwise maiming a client, McNulty always turns to a higher power. Sometimes no one but God can show you, you know, the amount of pressure needed on a thumb that will lead to payment. McNulty's relationship with the Lord deepened after he was visited by an angel who commanded him to shake down a Korean grocery store. We are at commandment number seven. You shall not commit adultery. And um, yes, we are at the commandment that is about sex. And while there is going to be nothing explicit in this next story, it does acknowledge the existence of sex. A little warning there. In 1976, in an interview with Playboy magazine, then presidential candidate Jimmy Carter admitted kind of famously that he had committed adultery in his heart many times, meaning, of course, that he had had lustful thoughts. Uh, there's this thing that Jesus says in the book of Matthew, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. Dave Dickerson grew up going to an evangelical church in Tucson, Arizona, and he remembers hearing about what Carter said about committing adultery in his heart. I was eight years old, and I knew just what he was talking about. He was just saying the same thing I had read in my Bible dozens of times. As an evangelical Christian, I wanted desperately to please God. So for my entire adolescence and up into my 20s, I literally tried to avoid having lustful thoughts. I was taught this was possible. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we take every thought captive in the name of Jesus, which means that any spiritually healthy person ought to be able to control every thought in his head. Of course, in practice, this is even harder than it sounds. So for young evangelicals like me, there's a whole sub-industry of sex advice columns and books with titles like Every Man's Struggle or taking thoughts captive. You can find them in the four men section of any Christian bookstore. The first thing they always tell you is that sex is a beautiful gift from God. Even though it's a gift they don't want you to touch or even think about because you're just going to ruin it with your filthy paws. Any physical pleasure, even pleasure you'd give yourself while alone, is completely forbidden. Then they tell you how to survive until marriage. They all run some variation on, you can't help the first glance, but you can prevent the second. You can obey God with your eyes. They don't have to see everything around them. If an attractive girl walks by, they don't have to survey her body, but they must obey Jesus Christ. This is Josh Harris in the audio version of his book, Not Even a Hint, Guarding Your Heart Against Lust. It's full of practical tips. I don't know about your house, but at our home, all kinds of sensuous and provocative clothing catalogs arrive in the mail uninvited. I've come to realize that I have to view even getting my mail as a battleground. Will I throw them away immediately or steal glances and flip through them for a quick thrill? If you're a guy with a similar struggle, ask your wife or mother to help you in this area by ridding your home of these unnecessary temptations. Other tips. These books tell you to watch TV with a remote in your hand, so if a sexy beer commercial comes on, or when the sports camera cuts to the cheerleaders, you can immediately jump to another channel. And be honest with yourself. When you watch ESPN2, aren't you hoping to see gymnastics? And guys need daily quiet time to read the Bible and pray for strength in the fight against temptation. I don't know why, but in my case, none of this ever worked. I wanted it to work, longed for it desperately. But every week or so, late at night, I'd give in. M happened again, I would write in my journal, as if it weren't an action, but an event. Something that could just engulf you like a flash flood or a car accident. Something so terrible it could only be referred to in code. I was an adulterer. 
That's what the Bible told me, and I struggle with the guilt of that every day. After high school, I went to a huge state college in Tucson, and on warm days, I would walk across campus feeling like a monster. Because I believed that noticing a girl's body was the spiritual equivalent of something like sexual assault. I assumed all this was the same for all of us fundamentalist kids. At every all-guys prayer meeting I ever went to, someone was always asking for help with their thought life. But I'd never actually asked if anyone had quite the same problems I did. So I called my friend Derek, a missionary's kid, who was my best friend from church back then. You're right, it wasn't your own obsession at all. I uh, developed a technique of seeing girls as just floating heads, you know. <laughs> it's like, you just learn you're just not, not going to look below the neck, you know, because it's like... Uh, um, in, there's in the only way, bad like, news it, there. Yeah, it did have this funny effect on... I, I mean, I, I was a cartoonist for my college newspaper, and I didn't actually know how to draw girls, really. I mean, you can see... <laughs> That's right. You can see when I would draw a, a female figure, uh, top to bottom in the cartoon... There's an awkwardness to it, because I didn't actually know what they looked like. <laughs> and those kind of things were kind of... It's funny to look back and talk about them now, but it was all very dead serious back then. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, it seems so trivial and silly, and yet it caused actual agony. Yeah. You know, we felt de depraved. Yeah, and there's, and there's this, this terrible, um, a real anger, a sense of unfairness at the media, like, you know... Uh, Coors Light put up these billboards with women in swimsuits on them, and they were very uh, well-designed swimsuits. And <laughs> and then uh, there they would be, right, like right, right up in the sky, you know. And so you just felt like the devil was just absolutely this very wily opponent, and it's just in your face all the time, you know. And it's so frustrating if you're trying not to go out of your way to look for it, but then it seems like everybody's pushing it in your face. Do you ever, um, you know, wish you could go back? Yeah. And, okay. You know, it's funny you should ask that because I have actually had that imaginary conversation before. You know, you see some time travel movie. <laughs> Vanessa's like, wow, if I had a chance to go back, you know, what would I tell that kid? And I think I would tell myself, you know what? You spend so much time straining over this one issue that you are avoiding or um, overlooking the whole rest of your spiritual journey. wasted a lot of time. There's a lot of time wasted obsessing. And uh, I think that's kind of what you, what you found out yourself, too, right? Like, it just gets to a point where things crack instead of bending. He's right. They do crack. And for me, they crack worse than for Derek. I couldn't buy porn. That was obviously forbidden. I didn't have a girlfriend. I couldn't even watch MTV. So the only sexual experiences I'd had were the ones that happened by accident. A woman bending over in a low-cut shirt, for instance. And then at 22, I started finding myself walking slowly along campus or in supermarkets at a library, hoping to see another accidental glimpse of something. It took more and more of my time. My grades started to suffer. I was like a stalker, but a shy one with incredibly low standards. Then after a couple unbearable months of this, I begged my pastor for help. He suggested Sex Addicts Anonymous. At my first meeting, we all told our stories. There was a guy who'd spent thousands of dollars on prostitutes in a single long weekend. There was a woman who'd slept with a different guy almost every night for years. There was a huge tattooed biker who was so ashamed to be there that a friend let him in blindfolded. And then there was me, a 22-year-old virgin. When I told my story, there was an awkward silence. Even here, nobody understood my problem. A few days later, I went to a Christian counselor, expecting he'd just tell me to pray harder, look for answers in the scripture. I explained my problem, and he looked at me and frowned, and he asked if I ever did the act, the one that I found so horrible I only referred to it in code. Trust me, he said. Let yourself do it. Give yourself permission and see what happens. This was shocking, that a Christian would give me this kind of advice, that it's possible to obey too much, that you could lead yourself astray by following the Bible's rules. 
That very day, I took home my first Playboy magazine, and that was that. After five minutes, I was no longer desperate to glimpse random women bending over the freezer cases at the grocery store. It felt like a miracle. It was so fast, so life-changing, that it was like converting all over again. Dave Dickerson. He's working on a book called How to Love God Without Being a Jerk. Now we get to one of my favorite stories in several weeks. I, I love these things, man. I just, I love them too much. Nepal has appointed a three-year-old as a new living goddess. Of course they have. Of course they have. Here she is. Let's, let's watch her. She's, oh, precious. Precious. Uh, apparently there's an old uh, tradition where they find uh, the incarnation of the powerful Hindu deity Talaju. And uh, they're referred to as Kumari, a living goddess. And they find them from the impoverished Shakya goldsmith caste. They go through all the two to four-year-olds, and they find the ones with uh, no imperfections. And in this case, it was the girl you're seeing here, Matani Shakya. Well, uh, this is a little shocking. Uh, get a load of what they do here. The judges read the candidates' horoscopes, check each one of them for physical imperfections, the living goddess must have perfect hair, eyes, teeth, and skin with no scars and should not be afraid of the dark. Uh, this is from the Associated Press. Now, so far, it's absolutely patently ridiculous, but it's about to get a thousand times worse. As a final test, the living goddess must spend a night alone in a room among the heads of ritually slaughtered goats and buffaloes without showing fear. They take a three-year-old. In fact, they take many three-year-olds because they're doing this test, trying to find the perfect one, and they put them in a room at night with the ritually slaughtered heads of goats and buffaloes. And the one that doesn't freak out is the living gratis. Uh, I look, it's a three-year-old, so I don't want to. I, I don't know why she doesn't freak out, but I think the one that doesn't freak out is the unnatural one. <laughs> Anyone who freaks out is makes perfect sense to me. Imagine you're three years old, and they're like, okay, we think you might be a living goddess, but we've got one last test for you. Uh, we, we decapitated the head of a goat. Here it is, and the head of a buffalo. And we're going to make you sleep in that room. You know what I'd do? I'd be like, what? Hey, God, get me out of here. These guys are nuts. All right, we go further. We're not done yet. Having passed all the tests, the child will stay in almost complete isolation at the temple. Wow, what a great prize. And will be allowed to return to her family only at the onset of menstruation when a new goddess will be named to replace her. Uh, that sounds like so much fun. In near complete isolation from the age of three to whenever menstruation starts. Uh, the father here in this case, Pratap Manshakya, was said, I feel a bit sad, but since my child has become a living goddess, I feel proud. Uh, but, of course, what happens to the kids? They get all messed up over there. Because this situation... Oh, look, I'll tell you a little bit more before I tell you what... Uh, the final conclusion for the uh, girls that go through this is. During her time as a goddess, she will always wear red, pin up her hair in top knots, and have a third eye painted on her forehead. Man, that sounds fun. Um, devotees touch the girls' feet with their foreheads, the highest sign of respect among Hindus in Nepal. During religious festivals, the goddesses are wheeled around on a chariot pulled by devotees. It, it sounds hideous, if you ask me. It might sound like fun in the beginning. Oh, whoa, we didn't pull around by devotees. Whoa, I got a third eye. Everybody watch out. I'm wearing red. I got a top knot. Whoa. Oh, now I go back to the temple in complete isolation. I mean, remember, these are tiny kids. No parents. 
And then every once in a while, creepy dudes come and put your feet on their head, right? Ah, oh, this world, this world, what am I going to do with this world? They really believe this. They, they, they think that she's a living goddess, living goddess. All right. Finally, so what happens to the girls when they come out? It turns out they have, uh, that they struggle adjusting back to normal life. You don't say, after 10 years of being pulled around by humans and having your people touch your feet to your forehead and leaving in complete isolation, it turns out they're not psychologically well adjusted. But if that wasn't enough of a screwing over, uh, they go ahead and have a tradition, a folklore, that if you marry a Kumari, a living goddess, uh, what will happen to you is you will um, die young. So nobody wants to marry you. Congratulations, you're a living goddess. You will spend 10 years in complete isolation, living a miserable life, and when you come out, nobody wants to marry you. You'll face financial hardships and die miserable. C congratulations, you win. Now, why do I love this story? Because humanity is a fascinating thing, man. I mean, look, when you we've got our own folklores here and our own culture, U.S., wherever you came from in your uh, and since the U.S. is an amalgamation of all these different cultures from wherever you came from, you have your own traditions, etc. Uh, when you look at other traditions, you realize how we're all cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You look at that and you go, well, obviously that isn't true. That's ridiculous. But the Nepalese, they look at our traditions and go, oh, look at that. They believe in this crazy guy that's going to swoop down and suck us all up. Yeah. <laughs> right, good one, big guy. Died for the sins. What the hell does that mean? Why would you want to... And they have the thing about you got to kill your son, and then God saves them at the end. Why? Well, these people are sick, <laughs> right? I mean, you want to get into Muslim traditions, et cetera, et cetera. Don't make me go down that road. But, you know, it goes to show you, we have a human need to believe in this kind of mythology. It somehow reassures us everything's going to be all right. My life might be screwed up. I might have a lot of problems, but it's okay. The living goddess is going to take care of me. All i got to do is take her feet, put it on my forehead, and everything's going to be all right. No matter how ridiculous, no matter how nonsensical, we're going to do it. We're going to come up with some crazy-ass story, and everybody in that town is going to believe it. And everybody in that culture is going to believe it. And when you see uh, other people's stories, you go, nah, maybe mine doesn't make quite as much sense as I thought. Either. That's the way I see it. But uh, now we know. Now we know who the new Shakya Kumari is. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, you've got to give me credit for just one thing, which is that I had the foresight during the last show to say very clearly that it was only a possibility that that would be the last time I brought up the Polar Bear Plunge fundraiser I'm taking part in. And, uh, and so I, I have every right to bring it up again. So I am. So, so here, here's what happened. In, in this last uh, just few days since I put out the last show... Uh, I announced on that show that I was hoping to raise $1,000 for my job. And at the time, I had raised 380 You know, 380 in the bank, credited to my name. And in just the last uh, four days or so, you guys came through amazingly. We're now at a very solid, very respectable $800 credited to my name, 80% of the way there. And, and that was all you. That was all listeners of this show. That was not, you know, my rich uncle finally wrote his check. Nothing like that. It was, you know, 10 and 20 and a few very generous $50 donations coming in one at a time from listeners of this show. And I appreciate it so much. You guys are amazing. I mean, I say, I say it over and over again, but, you know, I try not to ask the audience for much. But every time I do, you guys come through and and so I'm, I'm coming to you now um you know we're so close to this goal i've decided absolutely to not give up and i come to you with a deal uh one of the uh one of the donors who who sent in a, a very generous donation in uh you know the last couple of days i think made a very reasonable request um although i think he might have been laughing maniacally uh, when he said it and that was that I release uh, you know after the event on Saturday 
that I release uh, a picture, at least a picture, of me, um, you know, possibly embarrassed, uh, possibly, uh, you know, an embarrassing photo, definitely one that shows me in a lot of uh, pain and anguish from the cold water, so that you guys can share in my suffering for, you know, doing this event. You know, you, you've been such a big part of the fundraising effort. It, it makes all the sense in the world that you should share in, uh, in the joy of seeing me suffer, you know. So I'm coming to you with a deal, which is that I will absolutely gladly release that type of a picture or video clip or whatever I happen to come up with uh, after tomorrow's event. But we've got to we've got to reach that goal. We are so close. I need, listen to this. I need ten people with twenty bucks. I mean, it's uh, it's inconceivable that we're not going to reach this goal. I need ten people with twenty bucks, and uh, and I will release uh, a picture or video or some audio or something that shows me in horrible pain and anguish from going in ridiculously cold water uh, tomorrow when the forecast says it will be, uh, I want to say, 37 degrees in the air, very, very high chance of rain, and a reasonable chance that it's actually going to snow on the beach while we're out there. So if you've made your donation, I love you guys to death. I, I can't I can't say enough. Uh, what a great feeling it is to have such support from the listeners. And if you haven't donated yet, please do so. Uh, we're we're reaching that goal, and and that's all there is to it. We're we're going to reach the goal, and and I'd really appreciate if if you could help. Ten people, twenty bucks, pictures of me in horrible pain for everyone. What could be better? Let's get it done. You you guys know what to do. Bestoftheleft.com, right smack in the front big banner headline says fundraiser read the little paragraph i said right there there's a link uh in that paragraph says my fundraising page go to that make your donation and uh and we'll reach this goal that's it for today so coming to you from inside the beltway and outside the border and conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you from bestoftheleft.com Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Who shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fun fact